Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, July 7th, and I'm Kristen Roberts, national editor. Here are the numbers that matter this week. 56. That's the percentage of all adults who disapprove of Hillary Clinton's handling of questions about her email use. 51 million. That's how much Donald Trump raised in June. 28. The number of convention rules committee members who would need to vote to unbind delegates or at least start the process ahead of the Republican National Convention. And the most meaningless number of the week? 10. The number of people Trump says he has on his vice presidential shortlist. So grab your calculators and enjoy the 2016 Nerdcast. Hello, everybody. Charlie Matessian. Hi, Kristen. Eli Stokels. Hi, Kristen. And standing in for both Ken Vogel and Scott Bland, we have Hadass Gold. Hello. Let's start with our first number. It's 56%. That's the percentage of adults who disapprove of Hillary Clinton's handling of questions about her email use. And that was according to a poll that came out before this week's revelations. So... Charlie, tell me, what does this news do for Hillary Clinton? Does it help her because it gets it behind her? Does it hurt her because it undermined all of her arguments for her use of this personal email server? Help us understand. Well, I think the Clinton campaign uh, tried to make the case that this was actually a pretty good day for them, that there's some resolution. They issued a very taut one or two sentence uh, statement saying it's resolved and behind them. And what I think you've seen since then is maybe uh, some attempt to litigate the fine points of the findings uh, by uh, the FBI, which suggests that maybe that tack wasn't uh, as successful as they, they thought it might be. Uh, does it hurt them in the end? You know, I don't think it hurts them among Democrats. You don't see a lot of polling data that suggests that. Uh, obviously, it's not helpful in any way. I mean, those were some pretty devastating findings there. Uh, they contradicted a lot of what Hillary Clinton has been saying. But, you know, after the, the findings came out, uh, I tried to take a look at a lot of the polling data out there to see what the implications of this might be. And one of the things that you see is that there's been a pretty consistently high number of folks that uh, were down on Hillary and have serious questions about her character, uh, and in particular, her honesty and trustworthiness. And that's been uh, ongoing since uh, at least, you know, for, for over a year. Over, yeah. And those numbers really haven't changed dramatically. And so I don't suspect that they're going to change dramatically as a result of this. I mean, I think it's pretty hardened in terms of where people stand on Hillary on this. I thought it was always really interesting, and uh, as everybody at this table knows, but maybe not all our listeners know, we do the, the Politico Caucus every week, which is this uh, anonymous survey of political insiders from across the uh, battleground states. And one of the things that's been really consistent in our findings there, because we can't publish them all, but when we look at the, the findings is that all the Democrats think it's not a big deal. Uh, they think it's overblown. They've been on her side the entire time. And 
keep in mind, remember when Bernie took it off the table during the primary? He was celebrated and applauded throughout the Democratic Party. So I think in a lot of ways, it's almost become hardened and a partisan issue so that it's not helpful in any way. And it will, I think, ultimately have a deeply corrosive effect if she's elected uh, because she's going to go in without anything approximating a mandate. People will have profound questions about her character going in, and that is going to hurt her in the long term. But does it hurt now? I'm not so sure it does I mean, because I think it's baked in. You know, the, that's this point that you're making that it's already baked in. People's opinions about this, like Benghazi, have been baked in for a very long time around Hillary Clinton. Those on the right think one thing about it. Those on the left think the other thing about it. And it really comes down to the question of how large is this group sitting in the middle who are swayable, right? And are these people, Eli, looking at Donald Trump and deciding, is is my vote a vote for or against Donald Trump? Or is my vote a vote for or against Hillary Clinton? Or is it a protest? The people who decide this election are sitting here looking at both of these candidates, both pointing the finger at the other and saying they're like they're not trustworthy they have terrible judgment they're unfit i mean you know dramatic arguments not my policies are better the other person can't be president that's the argument they're making and really it's going to come down to who makes a more convincing argument i mean republican frustrations this week were reaching a boiling point again because here is this gift right this is like perfect in a way because hillary clinton remains the nominee she's not getting indicted and yet she is tarnished further by this you have the fbi director from a democratic administration coming out and basically saying scathingly for 15 minutes any reasonable person should have known better all right and And yet what does trump do and trump goes out two nights in a row and talks about the wall last night or wednesday night he talks about the star of david tweet and you know i wish we didn't delete it i mean just you know he's talking about mosquitoes oh and saddam Saddam hussein Hussein. i hate saddam hussein but you know damn he really knew how to deal with those terrorists i mean you know and last night he was ripping on chuck todd more sleepy-eyed chuck todd was you know persona non grata for daring to say and he certainly wasn't the only one because we've all been saying this but he was mad at chuck todd who said, why didn't he go after Clinton harder? Everybody was saying, why didn't you go after Clinton harder? And Trump, instead of going after Clinton harder, was going after Chuck Todd. So it's just, again, it's like, you know, just like if anybody can screw up the election running against somebody like Donald Trump, it might be the Clintons, it might be Bill Clinton, like stupidly going onto the airplane. Well, the inverse of that is that if anybody could screw up an election against, against a nominee as damaged as Hillary Clinton, it's Donald J. Trump. It's well, a decision between careless and reckless. I mean, this was the best possible outcome for Republicans because if she had been indicted, then what, we would have had Joe Biden swooping in and saving the day. And then if nothing had happened, then that would have been positive for the Democrats. This was literally the best possible thing for them. But it's interesting. I mean, so you have Comey on Capitol Hill, right? And and when it comes to the Clintons, you know, they're enemies on the right have never overplayed their hand in going after them. So I'm sure that would never happen. But today, two days after his press <laughs> conference, two days after his press conference, who's on the Hill, right? The Democrats are apoplectic. They say Merrill, or, uh, you know, Merrick Garland couldn't get a hearing, hasn't gotten a hearing in months. And it takes you just two days to bring this guy to the Hill. Wow. So you can do things. But what are they trying to do? They're trying to create more political ammo and they're getting it because you have well, Call and because they today. have to, because right. Donald Trump isn't using and it. If, I mean, what Paul Ryan is doing, is doing is actually coming to the rescue of the Republican Party. He's saying, hold on a second, let's take this moment because our candidate won't. Right. I had an FBI agent friend of mine, you know, 
Quayle email me the other day and say, do we even know if she, if she's elected, can actually get the highest level security clearance that a president should get? Because, you know, as an FBI member, it says crystal clear in the code of conduct that, you know, uh, it, you, you lose that with a pattern of dishonesty or rule violations. Um, personal conduct or concealment of information that may increase a person's susceptibility to blackmail, allegations of uh, or admissions of criminal conduct, regardless of whether the person was formally charged, unauthorized disclosure of classified information. These are all things he's sending me saying, if I did this, I lose my clearance. I'm out of a job. It won't be the case for her. But just uh, Thursday morning, Comey on the Hill had to answer these questions, right? This is the forum for Republicans to ask these questions. And he says, well, any person that works for the FBI, yes, would lose their clearance over something like this. And here we have, we're talking about a person who wants to be commander in chief. You know, uh, um, I spent a lot of money to get a useless law degree. So uh, <laughs> I, I think the, the Comey language and his finding wasn't that much of a surprise. And I didn't think it was that much of a stretch. But what what really strikes me is just how bad it all smells. And the 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 ripple effect it's going to have across broader culture with with people that just don't pay really close election uh, pay close attention to the process or to the election I mean just think about people who already think we, we've got a nation with you know enormous numbers of people that think the process is rigged uh, and then they see uh, this lit this series of events where uh, you see the attorney general meets privately on a plane with Bill Clinton in the midst of this investigation. Then a couple days later, uh, on the same day that the president is supposed to endorse uh, his preferred successor, the FBI director comes out and essentially exonerates her in many ways. I mean, it just looks so bad. And it gets back to my obsession, which is just that it is the elites of the country that have just, you know, really gone off the rails in so many ways. Well, it is the stuff that creates conspiracy Exactly. Theories, right? Well, and no, it's not like we have any nominees or candidates out there who like to engage in conspiracy theories, right? <laughs> but, I mean, that's what he's doing. He's been criticized for saying, you know, for not hitting Hillary hard enough. But he is out there just saying the game is rigged. The process, it's all rigged. It's all rigged. And I think that even though that sort of seems like a, you know, crude, simplistic argument, um, you know, when you give definition to it, uh, you know, as whether you're Bill Clinton or Hillary, I mean, like you're sort of helping him make that argument. A lot of people do feel that way. All right, let's go to our second data point. It's 51 million. That's how much money Trump raised in June. But is it a lot of money, Eli? Sounds like a lot of money. Well, it's all relative, right? So compared to the three million he raised uh, prior to that, like yeah, it's it's pretty good. It's pretty good uh, growth. Um, but you know, if you look a little more closely at it, you see that roughly half of that money was raised through the joint uh, fundraising uh, agreement with the RNC. So a lot of that money is going. Half the money's essentially going to the RNC. So that's people donating money to the RNC, not necessarily to Donald Trump. Right. This is a lot of the fundraisers and things they've done. But you know, a lot of the money that the campaign raised online. So the other half of that, they say, oh, you know, average donation two hundred dollars. It's so great. We have this movement. Well. Right, they didn't have any of this. They never bothered to create an online fundraising arm during the primaries. They didn't need it. It's true, but now that they have it, how do you create that from scratch so quickly? Well, you buy you, a list. You buy lists. So who are who's in in Trump world? Who has lists to buy? Right, obviously Ben Carson, who raised a ton of money in the primary. But how did he do it? He did it sort of through these email scams. I mean, remember when Ben Carson himself came out and said, "I think I just realized that my whole fundraising thing might be a bit of a scam." <laughs> I mean, it just dawned on him that he was getting taken to the cleaners by these people who are raising money for him. Okay. Let's 
let's back it up, though, because I don't think that readers or listeners, sorry, listeners, have a real clear understanding of what these email lists are, how they work, and how the candidates themselves are getting, you know, as you put it, scammed. I don't think it's a scam. Well, I think not it's a, a scam. business. It's, it is a business, but I mean, it, 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 it sometimes it's hard to differentiate because you're almost paying these companies, um, you know, like, close, like in Carson's case, I mean, every dollar that he raised, I think about 90 cents was going out back to the company that was raising it and right. building the list. These email addresses that they have, they have millions of them, but you're buying these lists. You're buying these people's email address from Very other Very often you're renting other, the email right, lists, right? right? And these email lists, when you rent them, you come up with a contract in which you're sharing some of the revenues. The best kind of contracts give the for the candidate give the candidate most of the money, maybe a 50-50 split. But increasingly what we saw over the course of the 2016 primary is that some of these candidates were getting less and less and less of that money as little as 10% of that. So the the company that was doing the rental agreement was making bank, frankly, while Ben Carson looked like he was collecting a huge sum of money. In fact, when you dove deep into the numbers, every time there was an FEC filing, you would find that Ben Carson was spending almost as much money as he was bringing in. That's exactly right. And we don't know exactly what the arrangement is or what, you know, Trump is probably using a lot of different lists, not just Ben Carson's. Chris Christie's. I mean, there are a He's lot of different. He's also using Daily Callers and Breitbart's. So there are, isn't that interesting? So right, there are all these lists that they're sort of throwing together and, and blasting out these pitches to, and, and it makes sense. And yes, they did bring in a lot of money, but if they had a lot of money in the bank, you would think they would also have released a cash on hand number. We have this amount of money in the bank, and there was no cash on hand number. It was a sort of opaque and confusing release that came out on Wednesday from the campaign talking about 51 million. That's the big number they want you to see. But the more important number would have been a cash on hand number. You didn't get it. And just one more point, you know, we talked about it, how relative this is. Well, yeah, it's much better than the 3 million that was raised the month before by Trump. But in June of 2012, you know how much Mitt Romney raised? 106. Yeah. 106, so twice as much. And that's just the difference between a professional campaign with a professional fundraising operation that's been, you know, that's had months to sort of get going and get moving versus this sort of fly-by-night operation that they just sort of slapped together. I think the most stunning aspect of this is the idea that they didn't release the cash on hand number because, you know, when you when you follow the the uh, and it's too bad Ken's not here to talk about this uh, as the campaign the reigning campaign finance guru but when you follow this stuff you realize the way campaigns try to uh, try sleight of hand to sort of hide when they don't ha- hide the the unpleasant numbers that are in their reports and it's remarkable when when was the last time you saw numbers released but no cash on hand at all reported it's always a dead giveaway that they're trying to hide something. And here, I mean, I don't think it's a nefarious scheme to hide something. It's just they don't want the news to be dominated by how little money they have else. Otherwise, they would have put that number out. So, uh, uh, and this also goes to show you, if they're raising that much money, let's look, let's look at it in a best case scenario for Trump. You know, um, sure, he's buying lists and all that, but there's no question there's a lot of intensity at the grassroots for Donald Trump. And there's, you know, a lot of small donors that want to give to him. Uh, and so it goes to show you that if he had done this early on and had run a more standard campaign and done, say, what Bernie Sanders had done, he could have really done well with small donors and through uh, online mechanisms. And the people who really needed it are the people who are not getting it, right? And it's the down-ballot candidates. It's the committees, right? So Donald Trump probably doesn't need this money. He could probably continue to self-fund his campaign if he really wanted to. And the whole the whole mess today that we're hearing from our sources in-house and 
and Senate campaigns about them now facing even more competitive races at home, you know, that's about them being used to a situation where the National Party was delivering a check or more commonly delivering field staff and helping them win their races. And so Donald Trump pulling in 51 million, but really pulling in far less than that because of how much money he has to spend to collect that income, it has an effect down ballot. It won't necessarily have an effect on him. Am I right about that? Oh, yeah, definitely. And and you're just you're also seeing that just in their races, just what a mess this has all been for the down ballot people as they try to distance themselves. Their opponents are just attaching them to uh, to Donald Trump left and right. I think didn't the DCCC come out just now with like a huge ad buy um, to help their down ballot candidates <clears throat> really, com- really connect their opponents to Donald Trump and his campaign? We're going to see, this is going to be a fun thing to watch over the course of the next couple of weeks. You know, I think we're going to get to see which of these candidates actually show up to Cleveland for the Republican National Convention, right? Right. And then how many of them continue to stand next to or behind Donald Trump and really how many of them try to put some distance. It's kind of like Obama, um, was it like 2012 and 2014 when people were really trying to keep him out of their ads and things like that. Now they're all running back 14. Yeah, Mm -hmm. 14. Yeah, no, I mean, in, when, you know, Alison Lundergan Grimes said, oh, I, I don't remember if I voted for him. And Mark Udall <laughs> in Colorado was like, oh, I couldn't possibly get back to Denver for this fundraiser uh, when the president showed up. I mean, it was just like sort of a joke. Um, it's fascinating, though, how that's changed, too, and how we saw this week how much Hillary Clinton, you know, in campaigning with him for the first time really needs him. Um, Trump's made the president much more popular. And when you go to Cleveland, you know, I think the conventions will be different because I think even the Bernie dynamics interesting um, in Philly. But, you know, in Cleveland, I mean, the conversations I'm having with people, John Kasich, home state governor in Ohio, not going to be with a speaking slot. And his people told me this week, I doubt he even sets foot inside the queue, the That's arena wild. where this takes place. Yeah, he's going to be going to delegation breakfast. He's going to be doing things. But I don't think he'll actually go inside the convention. Who's going to speak? Trump's been telling us this week. Oh, all my kids are going to speak. Bobby Knight's going to speak. You know, he's in Ohio telling Ohio that he won Indiana because of Bobby Knight. Like, do your homework. I don't think Bobby Knight is beloved in in Ohio. But, you know, point being, it is going to be crazy. And a lot of the people who are the traditional people that you see at the Republican Party convention, they'll be in Cleveland, but they won't really be key participants this year because Trump is turning it into sort of a... Uh, reality show sounds trite, but but just a very different kind of show um, and and party gathering than we've seen before because it's so fragmented. But it, it works with his brand because if anything, he's proving to his supporters that he doesn't need to grovel to all these quote unquote party elites and he doesn't need to check the boxes to have. It's funny though, but that not so many of them are party elites, right? right? I mean, when people talk about party elites, they should be thinking about people like Reince Priebus, right? right? They should be thinking about people in Washington. But the truth is the people that in the party that Donald Trump is hurting the most are House and Senate candidates, House candidates, right? right? I mean, I mean, for the first time in, in the last month, really, I mean, like, let's step back. And for the last month, we've been talking about a possibility that the House turns Democratic. That's I'm not talking astonishing. About that. <laughs> Some people are talking about the possibility, not Charlie. Some people. I heard this Some on the people. Internet. I heard it. 
But it's funny. Yeah, I mean, Marco right. Rubio. I mean, I know it's, we're all shocked that he changed his mind again. But you remember when he, two weeks ago he's going to the convention? Well, now he's a Senate candidate. He's not going to the convention anymore. Right now he's like uh, he was saying nice things about Donald Trump. Now he's running for the Senate. Donald Trump's ten points down in Florida, and he doesn't have any nice things to say about Donald mm-hmm. Trump anymore. It's funny how that works. But Too bad for Marco. He wasn't down ten points a little bit earlier. Well, yeah, <laughs> a little different. Yeah. You know, here's the irony, sad, though. Of, sad trombone. Sad exclamation point. <laughs> the irony about Trump, though, is uh, imagine this scenario, and, and I don't think it's really that far fetched, where uh, the convention maybe maybe doesn't go that well. He comes out of the convention, and by late summer, it's clear there's no way he can win Hillary Clinton. That she has a lead um, that is you know uh, impenetrable. He shows no discipline on the trail, and the entire party writes off his campaign. Then it's going to be a windfall for House and Senate candidates because all the donor money is going to pour into their races, and the party is going to engage. Uh, in you know sending out every lifeboat imaginable to House and Senate candidates, and then it ends up being you know maybe not a bad year for them. Let's go to our third data point. It's the number twenty-eight. That's the number of convention rules committee members who would need to vote to unbind delegates. And Reed Epstein of the Wall Street Journal, which remains the single best newspaper in America, says that that many of Whoa. those people are to ready Reed to do to listen so. To Nerdcast, huh? <laughs> the Journal is awesome. Do we disagree? Why do you think it's the single best? That's interesting. I think they're smarter than anybody else. Mm-hmm. I think they know what they do and who their audience is. They're not trying to pretend to be something that they're not. Well, we're off in the weeds now. <laughs> Can we get back to this number yeah. 28? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. You just went number hard at that. Right. I like the journal. I've right, always cool. liked the journal. Number 28, the number of convention rules committee members who would need to vote in one step toward the process of unbinding the delegates to vote their conscience at the convention. Right. It's the 28 are needed to call a vote. And then it's a big vote on whether or not to and un- the journal, let them on Yeah, board. and the journal claims that, or the journal is, it, it did a bunch of uh, reporting talking about headcounts and things like that. The woman leading this, this woman from Colorado, what's her name? Eli? Kendall Unruh. Kendall Unruh. She says that she has, she has at least about 30, some of whom are not willing to publicly say that they would be, that they would be open to voting to unbind the delegates. Uh, I believe the Wall Street Journal said that they had, they've counted at least 15. So what this means is that it's possible whether that actually happens is a lot less. I mean, it would be the first of a very long and insane process to to truly take Donald Trump off the ticket. And just the fact that it's even possible still shows that there's this. Let's whip bit. the vote in this room. How many people think that Donald Trump is going to not emerge as the nominee, Charlie? Do you, uh, I, th- I think he will be the nominee, I suppose. There's a lot more reluctance in your yeah. voice than I thought there there's would definitely, be. I, I do not think it's a certainty at all. Well, uh, you're going to have to spin that out a little bit. Well, I mean, the the, the Wall Street Journal story I, I found to be totally plausible. I mean, just think about it. If you lined up 112 Republicans, is it feasible to think you'd find 15 or, or maybe maybe 30 who would say, I, I can't do it. I, I just can't vote for Donald Trump. And I'd like uh, for us to have a uh, revote. Of course, you'd find that many. Uh, I mean, there's deep anti-Trump sentiment in that party. And so to me, it's a very plausible scenario. Hadass? I don't think so at all. I would bet money that Trump will be the nominee. Easily. Yeah. But uh, that's uh, that's different than saying that there is a contingent of people that simply will not accept him. I, I think oh, he'll be the course. nominee too, but I do think that there's going to be a lot more trouble. Yeah, of than course, but they're not going they're not going to beat the you know the tide of Donald Trump becoming the nominee. And I also think a lot of people, even if they so sorely dislike him, do believe that he is as of right now their better chance at beating Hillary Clinton. 
Huh. I don't know if I believe that. Eli, what's your vote? <laughs> I think I, I more. I, I, they both said that he's going to be the nominee, so I agree with that. I think I'm a little closer to Hadass in thinking that it's just very far-fetched to think that there's some scenario in which he doesn't get the nomination. But I think it's true that there is a lot. I mean, a lot of these people got elected to these slates uh, and to the convention uh you know, when anti-Trump, never Trump was sort of running high and they, the, a lot of these people are, I mean, Kendall Unner was a Cruz person in Colorado. I mean, they have an agenda too. Cruz, the Trump people will tell you privately, they see as just sitting in the weeds, waiting and waiting. He hasn't totally, um, you know, sent home all of his staffers who are working on this stuff. I mean, the thing is, if you unbind the delegates and you allow this vote, do they really go for Ted Cruz? Is there really anybody else in the wings waiting to save this? And there is still this argument that, you know, Trump won this process fair and square. And if you just suddenly, I mean, I just think it is, there are too many things that have to happen, including a lot of delegates having to get over this mental hurdle of saying, I'm going to disregard the results of this long primary in which, you know, tens of millions of people cast votes. I'm going to just throw that out because I think Trump's unacceptable. I mean, we've known Trump's issues and his problems as a general election candidate, For a year. Um, even if the base didn't, ever since he started his mm -hmm. campaign, ever since he rode down that escalator and called Mexican people rapists, like it's pretty obvious. Um, I think, though, that if this is a more precarious situation than the Trump campaign and the RNC would like people to believe, and I think the journal story says that it is, um, if this is kind of on the you know head of a pin right now, certainly not a good thing that Donald Trump is out there sort of failing to pivot to a general election message, failing to really consistently attack Hillary Clinton, you know, screaming into the microphone how terrible Chuck Todd is, that he hates mosquitoes, that Saddam Hussein's not a <laughs> terrible guy, but he hates the press for saying that he said that Saddam Hussein was good at killing terrorists or whatever the heck he said. I mean, this is all just like psychobabble. And if you have a nominee who's standing up and doing that, even on a week that the Republicans should have owned, when it comes less than two weeks before the start of this convention, if people are thinking about unbinding the delegates of people are thinking, God, this guy's just not going to get it done. This week's just, you know, making them think harder. All right. Here's a number for you, Hadass. 11. Yes. This is the number of years that Gretchen Carlson was on Fox News before her lawsuit against Roger Ailes. Yes. I don't want to talk so much about this lawsuit because okay. the legality, it's a serious issue, right? And we are not, except for Charlie, lawyers in this <laughs> right. room. Um I do want to talk about how big a deal Roger Ailes is. Help our listeners understand the kind of role he plays at Fox. Yeah, I'm not sure if a lot of listeners or readers really understand Roger Ailes because he's he's doesn't really go out in in front of issues as much as the other. I feel like network executives do. People tend to see their faces more and see them more, at, you know, in interviews and things like that. Roger Ailes may be probably the most powerful uh, person in cable news. Fox News has been the highest rated cable channel for years now. They are the reigning kings, um, both in the ratings and a lot of times uh, in politics. I mean, if you are a Republican candidate, it's almost required that you need to go on Fox News and you need to deal with them. Uh, this year has been a crazy year in, in a lot of instances. Fox News is still number one in the ratings, hands down. But we saw the Donald Trump incident where Trump was just getting into their heads and, uh, you know, boycotting a debate, which is insane, and arguing with the, the statements that we saw back and forth with Roger Ailes. Um, and now this You mean lawsuit, around the Megyn Kelly Around issue. the Megyn Kelly issue. Um, and now this, the Gretchen Carlson lawsuit, um, I mean, 
in the years that I've been covering the media and in many of my fellow media reporter colleagues, um, this is maybe the biggest issue right now because Roger Ailes has is known for really uh, creating these stars. He's the one who created and picked out Megyn Kelly and turned her into who she is. He engenders fierce loyalty amongst his on-air personalities who are always effusive in their praise of him left and right. Every time they get some kind of promotion, they're always just like, and I just want to thank Roger Ailes, who's done so much for me. He's really turned this into a family. Um, But Roger Ailes is also known to run a very tight ship. as a reporter, it is it is honestly very hard to get sourcing in Fox News. People there are in, incredibly fearful of talking. Um, so it's been a really difficult year, as you mentioned, right. for political reporters in general, but Fox News as well. I mean, I think it might have started with the Megyn Kelly um, dispute between Donald Trump and that anchor who is so popular with right. the viewers, right? Um, but it didn't end there, right? There was a dust-up over a debate. There have been lots of little things happening in the media world behind the scenes that most political observers don't pay a lot of attention to, most voters don't understand. How has that affected people on the inside of Fox News? Have they been feeling this as a, a hyper-tumultuous period for Fox I don't think that many of them saw the, especially the Megyn Kelly thing, as necessarily tumultuous period. A lot of people felt a lot of pride um, in how the network handled that situation and really coming to the defense of Megyn Kelly, um, kind of standing up to Donald Trump. This latest lawsuit um, is really probably one of the biggest moments in um, the history, you know, the, the recent history of Fox News and of Roger Ailes. Um, and that's, I mean, we didn't see a lot of Fox News people come out publicly to either to defend Roger Ailes or to defend Gretchen Carlson for that say. I think a lot of people are just really taking a hands-off approach to this. A lot of people were, were shocked that the lawsuit was brought because, you know, Roger Ailes is so powerful and it is such a um, damning and honestly risky lawsuit to take. I mean, it's a lot to put yourself out there and to she's going to get the brunt of the Fox News machine, which it has already started in these statements, but it's just going to keep going. Um, So the only really thing is just, you know, I got a direct message from one of their well-known on-air personalities that was just very much like an, oh my God. Um, And at the same time, there have been like rumors of, you know, of the behavior at Fox News. There have been, you know, lawsuits in the past. There have been EEOC lawsuits about um, gender and age discrimination. There what have kind been, of behavior? What are we talking about? I, some of the previous lawsuits have noted this kind of, uh, you know, old school, you might call it kind of an old school behavior. Um, and there have been instances on air where we've we've seen it. Um, Gretchen Carlson who has written about sexual harassment in her recent book, um, had moments where there's one moment in 2012 where she literally walked off the set of Fox and Friends. She said it was jokingly, but at the moment it was kind of an awkward, like, oh, what's going on here? Um, when her co-hosts, uh, Steve Ducey and Brian Kilmeade, uh, were joking about, you know, letting women into some event or something like that. And she was just like, you know what, I'm going to just like, why don't you guys read the news? And Brian Kilmeade was like, oh, great, finally, like an all-male crew or something like that. And she goes, like, go on in all your glory. And, like, she just, like, walks off set. Hmm. Um, It was a very weird moment. (laughs) And they claim it was joking, but it clearly, like, there was something there. Um, And now in her lawsuit, 
she's trying to back all that up. We won't go into the lawsuit and the legality of it. Is that really different? Is it different at Fox News than it is at other networks? I mean, we've got a former TV guy sitting right Right, exactly. I think TV always has, well, first of all, a lot of people have always said Fox News really cares about the appearances. The women always wear skirts. There's the quote-unquote, like, leg cam where you can, like, Megyn Kelly, she has the clear desk. You can see her legs. The um, there's, there's always, like, a thing about, they always, honestly, like, the Fox News people look better. When you're in makeup rooms, Makeup ladies, at least for me, will sometimes tell me, I'm going to give you the Fox News treatment. And that usually means, like, I'm going to really, like... Clown makeup. It's not clown makeup. More makeup. But they're they're really going to, like, they're going to make your hair bigger. They're going to make your eyelashes there's bigger. Like, sure, there's a look. a look. It's it's much more of a look than on other networks. Um, and it's, it's a different... I don't know necessarily... I mean, I think all cable news and all news has the superficial elements to it where you got to look good. I mean, you're not going to put a super... And the standard is different for women than it is for and men. The, yeah, That's the biggest thing different. I think that you see and, and you're made aware of when you're in TV because as a male, you just don't... You're not hitting the face with it every day. It's just not as obvious to you until you talk to your female colleagues and you're made to sort of understand the pressures that are brought to bear on women, whether they're women presenters on, you know, broadcast news, whether they're reporters or anchors or whoever. But, you know, it's it's also fascinating. I mean, it's, it's not just a matter of, like, women and the emphasis on their looks on television. I mean, you know, women who are reporting on this campaign just have a different um, – a different experience dealing with campaigns and with people with, with people emailing them and, and the trolls that come after them. I mean, they're just targets in a different way. There's there's an element of. Um, well, what was your experience on TV? Were you pretty I was, enough? I was in local news. I was. I, I don't know if I was pretty enough. I was pretty. I don't enough know. To, now you're a writer. I yeah, you're very maybe not. Maybe I, mean, I maybe I ran my course too. But I mean, you just sort of sit there. I was in, uh, you know, Colorado and I, I reported on the news and I did live shots every day and I slapped a little makeup on my face and stood outside the Capitol and didn't really worry too much about it. And when I anchored newscasts, I would do the same thing and sit on the desk and, you know, I would spend about two minutes doing my makeup and my co-anchor on the newscast would come out and she'd have been in the room for about an hour working on it. And I mean, men are a little different than women in that way. But, um, you know, the like, there's just far more emphasis, I feel like, on women's looks in television but again like i was saying beyond television i mean i just think that like as men doing journalism we don't have that same experience of like getting the inappropriate texts or emails from someone on the campaign at two in the morning as a lot of women covering campaigns day to day often do we don't get the same level of i mean we don't we don't get people attacking us um Based on gender or, or you know sexual in a, sort of sexual innuendos in emails from trolls, we get you know I get a lot of um, you know all caps angry emails from people um, as do most reporters I think from the trolls. But like you just don't see the same um, same sort of ugliness that I think people go after women with. All right, it's time for the most meaningless number of the week. And this week, a submission from Eli is the number 10. <laughs> That's the number of people Trump says he has on his VP list. That was as of Wednesday. So over the past week, four days, he has essentially interviewed in public four different possible Veeps. Two of whom have already said, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Okay. Um, and it wasn't so ago. So I guess so we're down to ago. eight? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. know. It wasn't so long ago that he said there were how many? Three? Oh, for months, you know, it was him and Lewandowski and everybody else saying there are no more than four people on this list. I mean, it's like closed. And this week there are 10. Or this now week, eight. This, yeah, or who no, knows? This week there are 10 and there are a few more that we haven't even heard of that 
we don't know about. Started talking. He said there might there are two generals being considered, and we right. have sources saying, oh, you know, Michael Flynn might be, you know, he's a foreign policy national security advisor to Trump. Um, we heard, oh, well, maybe Michael Flynn is in the mix, and he has a book coming out, and they may be moving his book tour. And you know, you talk to people in the campaign. I don't know if they're just like sort of floating these ideas. I mean, it's hard when you talk to campaign sources to really know whether they're floating something that they want in the media that, you know, whether it's true. I mean, it's hard to really understand the veracity of, you know, what operatives and sources are telling you, especially when they are operatives and sources on a campaign where really you have this incredibly mercurial candidate who is always contradicting himself and saying contradictory things. And so I think it's pretty clear, and we heard from Donald Trump Wednesday night in Ohio when he was there with Newt Gingrich that, you know, this isn't news to anybody, but Newt one way or another, will be a part of our administration. Well, I think it's that, that jives with what we've expected, which is that if there's a short list, however long it is, Gingrich is on it and he's somewhere near the top. Uh, and so too is Chris Christie. Uh, you know, and the thing with Gingrich and Christie that we know is that they have been vetted in this context before, mm -hmm. right? They've been national candidates, they've been presidential candidates, they've been through this. And so they may not add a lot to the campaign, like uh, Joni Ernst would add a woman, or you know, from a different region in the country. You know, they don't add a ton of like national security experience, like a Tom Cotton might add. Um, but they're on the list, and you know, Mike Pence, Indiana, is the one person who Trump met with first over the holiday weekend last weekend. Um, they spent quality time together, apparently, uh, according to Trump's Twitter, and. He hasn't taken himself out of the running yet. Well, so Bob I think Corker has. Corker has. Joni Ernst, Joni Ernst has. has. And so I think maybe the realist uh, is probably Gingrich Christie. Um, Pence. Lynn. Pence. And then maybe a fourth or fifth wild card. I mean, again, we're talking about Donald Trump. And so I sit here and say that that's probably the list. How the hell do we know, right? So, it could be, I mean, Trump could wake up tomorrow and say, say nope, it's going to be this person. Yeah, no, It won't be Petraeus. But before we turn these mics on, I looked over across the table at Charlie Matessian, who is actually running our big Veep project, right? Um, so all the stories that Politico publishes about the Veep stakes, as we call it, they've all been edited by Charlie. And I looked at him and I said, so Ivanka, like what do we make of the blah blah around Ivanka and really should we order up a story on this? And he looked at me like I was insane and I said Trump Trump. But it's Trump. So what about Ivanka? I think it was it was a legitimate question to ask. Uh largely because from every signal we've seen that the Trump organization is just winging it here. I mean this is it, and it goes beyond sort of the the, the standard VP hunt here. I think the names that are surfacing are just being tossed out there uh, because they're uh, having a real problem. And the problem is this. I think that there are not enough people that are vying for their vice presidency in this case. Now, there's this. I, I think there's this longstanding myth that, well, you know, the vice presidency isn't worth it. What, what is the John Nance Garner famous quote? The vice spit, presidency isn't, spit. Yeah, isn't worth a bucket of warm spit, I think it is. Warm spit. But like, here's, here's the thing, though. I mean, some of the biggest talents in American politics for decades have uh, tried very hard to become the vice president uh, only because it's a conveyor belt to the presidency. So this is a... Unless your name is Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, but he Aww. was at the back end of his career. And also now we've learned, also had it in the back of his mind that maybe maybe he could make it to the, you know, the big job at, at the end. In, in any case, this is a job that lots of people want, but 
from every indication we're seeing on the Republican side, there are lots of people with serious misgivings about being the number two to Donald Trump. And I think that's now reflected in the uh, talent that's left in the on the you know what we believe to be the short list list. I mean, it's no longer a list talent. Like Newt Gingrich, say what you want about him, even his biggest fans, you have to concede he's not an A lister in the Republican Party anymore. And Chris Christie, I would argue, has fallen from A-list talent status, and his f- his future is tied to Donald Trump. He lives and dies with Donald Trump. Uh, Mike Pence, again, another deeply wounded politician. Uh, so you're not seeing like the best top talents in the Republican Party vying for this. Right. Slot. Anybody that believes they have some sort of political future in the Republican Party isn't you know, has no interest in, in being on this ticket. It's only the people who are at the end of their terms as governors and really sort of have no other avenue to stay in national politics who are sitting there saying, yeah, pick me. And that's probably why Chris Christie was one of the first to get on board with this. I mean, the Ivanka thing, I just, it's like, it's just, it would be perfect for this campaign. Um, it's probably unlikely. Um, but, you know, he has said that, you know, if I could, I would date my daughter. So, I would say There's putting no, her on the ticket. Okay, but seriously speaking, his son said Ivanka would make a great VP. But here's the thing, though. Uh, arguably the brains how, of the operation. But here's how ludicrous it is. The, the fact that we're actually having this conversation. Imagine an alternate world where Chelsea Clinton floats the or where Hillary Clinton floats the idea that I might name Chase, Chelsea as my VP. Like we'd laugh. Like nobody would take that seriously. But you have to consider but this it on is the, the Trump side. That's the thing. I mean, we've g- gone so far off into like surreal, you know, la la land with Donald Trump. I mean, you can go back a year and you can say that same thing about every silly statement, every offensive statement, everything he's done that would just crush any more conventional, traditional politician. I mean, go on down the list. The McCain comments, the comments about the reporter with the disability, uh, you know, the comments about the, the Mexican judge, all this stuff. And yes, it's still controversy, but nothing, you know, Donald Trump's still there. So, so this is just par for the course with, I mean, there's no comparing anybody else to Donald Trump in terms of what is plausible and possible in his world and for him is just not things, you know, they're not things that are plausible or possible for pretty much anybody else, including Clinton. Is it legal to have your daughter be nominated as vice president? It's not illegal and she would be old enough by the time of election day. And you'd still keep buying her shoes. Hey, now. She makes some nice shoes. She makes some nice (laughs) shoes. She makes some nice shoes. Let's say goodbye. Eli, it's always nice to see you. Always nice to see you, too. (laughs) Charlie Matessian. Bye, Kristen. And Hadass, will you come back next week? Of course. Okay, awesome. Bye, everyone, for listening. If you liked our show, please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us. And look for us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast app.